Welcome to the Death Dialogues Project Podcast. I'm your host, Becky Odd Jennison, and I can guarantee you that you will be a better human for listening to these stories. Thanks for being here. I'm so happy to welcome our guest today, John Sardella. After 27 years of marriage, John Sardella lost the love of his life when his wife, Margaret, passed away following a seven-year battle with cancer. John looked for a book that would give him space for his pain and inspire him to move forward, but all he found were clinical books written by psychologists. That was John's motivation to write his own book and share how he worked through the grieving process in the hopes of reminding others not only that they are not alone, but also that they will be okay. John's book is called A Journey Without a Map, and today we deep dive into what his journey consisted of and some of the bright nuggets that came from his book and his experience. Thanks so much to John for being with us, and we are so happy that you are here. Thanks for listening. Hello, John. Thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you, Becky. I appreciate the invite and uh, share my story. Yes, I'm really looking forward to it. Um, I wonder if you might just let everybody know where you're at in the world. And what we like to do is just jump into hearing your story of uh, loss. And let's just have a chat from there, if that's okay with you. I appreciate the invite and I appreciate having the ability to share my story because it's a story about my wife and my wife who passed away three and a half years ago. Um, she was a person who was just wonderful. We were together for 30 years. And during those 30 years, we were married for 27 of those. And we were about to have our 28th anniversary. And um, she was diagnosed, unfortunately, back in 2010 with cancer. And it was pancreatic cancer with a neuroendocrine tumor, similar to the cancer that Steve Jobs actually had, who was in charge of Apple. And what happened was it was a slow growing tumor and not a lot of people knew what to do with that tumor and, and how to treat it. So we ended up in 2010 going to uh, Dana-Farber and going into a clinical trial, which was able to control the tumor for about three and a half years. And we were very fortunate to work with Dr. Chan at Dana-Farber. And Dana-Farber is such a special place that we were able to control it. She simply took some chemo and after chemo, she was on a stabilizer. And after three and a half years and going literally for monthly, weekly checkups, um, everything changed about three and a half years later around Christmas time in 2013. And it turned into um, a cancer that metastasized to her liver. Mm. And as it metastasized to her liver, it then became a focus on her liver and her cancer. And for the last three, three and a half years of her life, that was the focus. Well, during the first three and a half years of her cancer, she was only on a stabilizer and she only did one round of chemo. But during the last three and a half years of her cancer and her journey, she ended up being on nine different treatments because there wasn't, wasn't a treatment that really was controlling the aggressiveness of the cancer in her liver. And once we had success, we would have success once 
And then a couple months later, it wouldn't work after another scan. And then it was always, okay, what should we do next? And it was like throwing darts in the dark. Mm. You know, what is going to be the treatment that's going to help her the most? She ultimately succumbed to it in January 8th, 2017. And she passed away at the age of 51 years old. Um, mm. The good thing is during the seven years of her battling cancer, she was actually quite active. She was working for most of those years. Um, she led a normal life. But unfortunately, the last year and a half or so took a toll to a point where she couldn't teach. She couldn't work out. She couldn't really lead a normal life. And her last six months were very very, um, very difficult, ultimately, until her demise and when she passed away in January of 2017. Mm. Well, I was impressed with reading your book, just knowing the typical trajectory of pancreatic cancer, that she had as much longevity as she did and as much, you know, quote unquote, normal functioning as she did for the length of time she did. Yeah, you know, we were very fortunate because the first three and a half years, she was on a six-month chemo regimen, and it was just a pill, and it didn't have major side effects, so she could still function on a day-to-day -day basis. And what our typical day and weeks were during that time was um, she would go to Dana-Farber for a doctor checkup every other Friday. So we would drive the five hours from Syracuse, New York, where I'm from and where mm -hmm. I'm talking to you from. And um, we would literally do a 24-hour trip. We would stay with our friends. We would visit with them like on a Thursday night, go to the doctor visit the next day, and then come back home and have dinner with our kids. Um, she was working. She had to take days off so she could do the, her uh, so she could do the trip as I had to take days off too. Um, she was a teacher and I was a principal at the time in the same school district, and it was great. I mean, as much as she had the cancer, we were living a normal life, a normal routine. She was able to function uh, a full day. She had a lot of energy. She would go and she would work out in the morning. And once she worked out, she would go and teach all day. She would come home and she would make dinner. We would sit as a family. We would be together as a family. She would function fine after dinner and enjoy a show or read a book. And then she usually went to bed her typical time about nine o'clock at night. And then we would do it all over again. The difficult thing was when it changed and it metastasized to her liver, that's when she, she had a lot of inconsistency with her energy. There were times where she would be on certain treatments where she had a lot of energy and other times she didn't have a lot of treatments. And as she got closer the last two years to her death, she had to take time off from school, as I also had to take some time off to be with her, to support her. And those um, months turned into multiple months, which ultimately led to her not going back to teach. And she had to retire prior to um, succumbing to the cancer in January of 2017. Now, I'm... I'm remembering you all kept her illness a bit under wraps, did you not, in the early days? What we did is we really kept uh, the narrative close to the vest because yeah. she didn't want it to be out there. She didn't want to be known as that mother with cancer with the kids. She didn't want to be the person who wanted to have people feel sorry for her. We didn't want that as a family. 
And we want to keep it close to the vest because we want to make sure that the kids were going to be okay and they led a normal life. And in reflection and talking with my kids about it, they spoke about that. As much as they knew what their mother had, they led a normal life. They were, when, when Margaret was diagnosed, all the kids were still in either middle school or high school. And what happened was they were still leading a normal life. They were playing their sports. They had their friends. They were successful academically in the classroom. And they were living life like we usually, you know, anybody else would. And a big part of it was because we kept it so close to the vest and we didn't share with a lot of people. And we, when who we did share with uh, were very, very close confidants. Mm. So it was business as usual as far as anybody knew. And I'm sure, I mean, I just am amazed when you say, when you went through what her day looked like for those first three years. I mean, that's yeah. more energy than most of us have. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> well, Bless my wife her. prided she prided herself on eating well. Uh, she ate a lot better than I did. <laughs> mm. There were times where she would make her meal and I would make my meal. Of course, I'm I'm like a steak guy, and you know she was all vegetables and very little red meat. And um, I think that was part of the reason why uh, she was able to have as much energy and to be successful like she was. But she also had the mindset of keeping things simple. Let's not complicate our life. Let's mm. do the things that we usually do and let's do them well and let's live each and every day. So in hindsight, your children, am I hearing you say with your comment that you made before about the kids, do you, did, was that the way that it was effective for them to cope as best as possible? Are they pleased that it was, you know, wasn't the center of their lives during that time? Well, it, it, it's actually twofold because it was the center of their life, but it wasn't the center of everybody else's life. Mm -hmm. um, and, and, and as the kids were growing and learning, um, they, what, what was good about it is they prioritized things really fast of what was important because the, um, the, the level of, um, they knew that it was at a high level with my wife and that they had to learn how to prioritize and make sure that they kept what was important at the forefront of life. And so they actually learned and they grew up a little faster because of that. My oldest daughter talked about when she found out about the diagnosis, how important it was to be the oldest and to help the other children, you know, the, her siblings. And she did that and she took that to heart and she took that um, very seriously to say, how do I help Harry? How do I help Julia? How do I help um, and make sure that we all get through, through this together? Mm. And she was very helpful to myself along with her mother. Beautiful. So that's really what happened. Yeah. My kids are wonderful. We have a very close relationship. And at this time, I actually have two of the three living with me right now through this coronavirus. And mm -hmm. my oldest daughter, Megan, who's up with her fiance uh, from Washington, D.C., where she lives, has been here for the last two months and has been working from my house. And it's been wonderful to have her here because we have such a great relationship. And my youngest daughter just graduated from college. And as she graduated from college, she also was home with me doing her coursework. And, you know, the, and I have my oldest daughter's fiance here too. So it's been the four of us. And it's great because we have just a really solid 
foundation to our relationship. And a lot of that is contributed to what's important in life. And that's being with family and no nonsense. Let's just be together, enjoy each other's company and love each other and take care of each other. That's the great leveler of death, isn't it? Well, many times, I guess not, and, but it sure sounds familiar to me where it really makes you, makes you really value life in a different way and your relationships in a different way. And it sounds like, you know, it's hard to say that there are gifts when the kids, you know, don't have their mother at home with them right now, but she's certainly um, given them some lessons at a very yeah, important it's, time it's, in life, right? Yeah, it's perspective. It mm. gives them a perspective and an understanding of what life is really about, the importance of family, the importance of friends, the importance of whatever they believe spiritually, and making mm -hmm. sure that they do the right thing, you know, have integrity. And if you have those Beautiful. components like my kids do, it's amazing what you can accomplish in life. It's also trying to keep things simple. Don't yeah. try to, yeah, don't complicate it. Keep it simple. And if you can keep it simple, then it's amazing what you can accomplish. Well, John, I really love your openness. And I always love to have men on the show because, you know, sometimes they're no, no gender bias here, but no secrets either. <laughs> you know, a lot of times men have a bit more difficulty emotionally opening. And um, I've read your book without a map and would love for you to speak a little bit. I I I noted that it was a transformative process you said for you and can you tell us a little bit about how how that had helped you throughout this process and um of grief of of coping after Margaret's death and what that was like for you Sure um what I found is after Margaret died I felt a lot of responsibility that was put on me to make sure that not only myself can get through it, but I had the three kids. And I had all of her, her family and her friends around her and, and the friends around me. And it was important to make sure that peop, if people saw that I was moving forward and I was being active and I was doing things, it would help all of them. But it didn't really, deep inside, solve what I was going through. Mm -hmm. What I found was, you know, the first year you go through numbness. And as you go through numbness, you're just trying to figure out things and you're waking up each day to do it. But you don't really feel like you have a purpose. You're just doing it for the sake of doing it because of that numbness and that feeling. And then after a period of time, I came to the realization I was at some friend's house and I said, Jeepers, I, I think I need to see somebody. I know I'm being affected by this. I'm becoming more reclusive. I'm moving away from people. Um, I'm having difficulty saying goodbye to people. And as I say goodbye, I get very emotional. It's very difficult. And I seeked out a therapist and I worked with a therapist for a period of time. During that whole time, I always thought I was going to write another book because I have a couple publications through the game of lacrosse. And I was like, you know, it's been a while. I have creative time now. I'm retired. I still want to write that book. And I gave it a year after retirement and a little more time went by. And I came, to, I said, it's time to start putting my ideas down on paper. I, I had a bunch of notes, but I didn't organize them yet. And so I started organizing them back um, after about a year and a half past Margaret's death in January of 2019. 
And I felt it was very therapeutic and cathartic to do it because what I also found going through this process is that a lot of things were on my mind, but they were really scrambled. See, when Margaret was going through her through her, through her seven years, it was always at the forefront. She was always the priority. Everything was like literally at at the forehead of my of my you know at the forefront of my brain. Mm-hmm. And I always thought about that all the time. When she died, things kind of got scrambled inside my head because I was thinking about so many things. And then I started putting things down on paper and sequencing them out. And when I connected four months later with my publisher, I said, hey, here's what I want to do. I would like to just tell you a bunch of stories. And I thought each story would be tied into like leadership or motivation or inspiration or something like that. And they came back and said, well, John, actually, your story is you and what you went through with your wife. And they were right on and we could fit the stories within that. And I said, that makes sense. And that's why that's what the book is, A Journey Without a Map. But what I found is I went through the whole process of writing. That's where I really gained the most. Um, it was very cathartic to go through this process and to be able to organize my thoughts and get them on paper. Because at times when you talk to somebody, it's only short-lived. You have a conversation with a therapist, you talk about it, you leave the therapist's office, and all of a sudden you feel better. But you really haven't solved it. Because when I put it on paper... I felt like I kind of solved it a little more and I was able to get it out more and make it more real. And by creating this book and writing this book and organizing my thoughts, it got so many things that were scrambled in my my head onto paper. And it really helped me to be able to get more balanced in my life and to be able to move forward and to feel better. And that's where I'm at now, at, at now. I feel great. I I emotionally am in a great place. I have um I have my moments where I have my sadness. Uh the other day my daughter was um it was her graduation day even though there wasn't an official graduation. And it, last week I was a little emotional about that because and I was sad because my wife wasn't here to enjoy another milestone. But I talked it out with my oldest daughter and as I talked it out with her, I got to a better place. And now I understand it, I live with it, I manage it a lot better, and I'm able to move forward. It's not like I forget my wife, no way. I think about her every single day, but I am able to move forward. I get up with purpose every day instead of just getting up for the sake of getting up. I make sure that I work out. I make sure that I have a full day. I make dinner for the kids, myself. Um, I, you know, go outside and whether it's yard work, I play golf, I'm active. I do all sorts of things. And each day is fulfilling now because of the fact that one, I was able to get these ideas down. I went through that therapeutic uh, process that they, with the book along with others. And as I've gotten to this point of three and a half years later, I just manage it a lot better, and I think I'm managing it well, and I'm really in a good place emotionally. Well, that sounds beautiful, and I'm so happy for you that the writing was such a healing part. I guess, you know, that's, that is the nature of it. It's not a big surprise that you would say that, <laughs> but, but you know, I think it's just important to hear, yeah, how healing that can be. What I found, yeah, what I found was, it's just like journal writing, and a lot of people do journal writing. 
Um, and I found that getting those ideas down on paper was more powerful than I really understood. Mm. And now I understand it by the completion of this book. The other thing that I found, because I would live the world of education and I was always helping and supporting others. I was a teacher for 16 years. I was a principal for 15 years and I was a coach for over 30 years. And I always had the ability to be able to make an impact on others. As a principal, I had a broader audience because of the fact that I had more of an impact on adults along with the kids. And I had a bigger audience with that, where the other um, responsibilities I had were really mostly geared towards the kids. But as you read in the book, you know, a player comes back and says, Coach, you've always been there for me. And now I'm here for you. That's when I knew I made a difference. So by writing the book, I also know there was a purpose. And that purpose was to be able to help others who have gone through this situation. Mm-hmm. And I, I literally get almost daily reach outs from people who have read this book. And I just, before I came on with you, I actually just got an email from somebody just to say, thank you. I really appreciate writing this book. My husband passed away in 1993, but I understood everything you went through. 1993. Mm -hmm. That's a long time ago, 27 years. And she said, I wish I had this book back in 1993. And I'm glad you wrote it now so others could read it. And because I think you're really going to help many, many people. That's pretty powerful, Becky. That is powerful. And that's, that's what I'm getting out of this. When I have the ability to be able to talk with somebody and to share with them about, you know, they'll ask, how did you get through the first six months? You know, what happens about, you know, meeting somebody or what about the kids or what about this? And I'm able to share my perspective. Now, it's my story. I don't tell them what to do. I just share what I did. And they're like, wow, thank you. It really does help talking to you because I know you understand. And in those conversations, within two minutes, you're, it feels like you've been friends with these people for 20 years because they understand your story as you understand the story. You know, to have a purpose like this, to have a purpose like what you're doing with your podcast, it, sometimes it's more powerful for us as the leaders of that than it is sometimes for the guests and the people we talk to, Mm -hmm. because it's amazing how it helps us to keep moving on. And it really is a great sense of pride to be able to say we're helping somebody quite powerful. It is quite powerful. And it's the, it's the um, transformation of the, the desolation of grief and Mm -hmm. your loved one's lives, you know, turning it into something that's actually helping people. So this is a a kind of um, different comment that I'm going to make, but it struck me as I wrote down the date, this on January 8th, 2017, your beautiful Margaret died, correct? That is correct. And then so at that point in time, I was at my brother's bedside and mm-hmm. he died the 13th. And yeah. there's something there that I find with guests sometimes when there's that overlapping that 
you know, to think in these big, this big world and everything going on, that there was a point in time, and here we are talking now, but there was a point in time that we were in the the depths of loss and um, death and the aftermath or leading up to at the same time, kind of that liminal space. I find that, you know, there's a little bit of magic there and especially talking to you and in, in us both being in a space where something grew from that, you know, that was fertile soil for both of us. Yeah. It's a connection that we have. And now we have that forever. Now mm. we know that. And, mm. and it's pretty powerful. Um, and I do think that as time goes by, when you have loss, and since we're close in time with that loss, I think it helps with our conversation of understanding. Mm-hmm. And it, it and, and as you understand the 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 steps or the process of where people are, it's um it's relatable, and being relatable um, is quite powerful. It is, and I I find an amazing amount of power, and as you insinuated earlier, in hearing all the different stories and all the different ways people cope at different times. And one of the one of the beautiful balances I think of your book is that your um, as we can just hear from the power in your voice, you know, there is a positivity about you, and you. you know, school principal, you know, a coach motivation comes up, you know, there's these words that, that kind of spring forward to me. And I, that comes across in your writing as well. And even how you processed your grief and, or how you wanted to process it, what drove you. But what I loved about that is that actually, you know, there's a part of me as the therapist gone rogue that could be a little concerned thinking, oh, that's the recipe for, um, for kind of shelving the really hard, right, is just, you know, moving yeah. forward. And but, but you have your legs on both side of that fence, you know, both side of that river, you know, you don't, it, it doesn't, sh- you, you, you feel the pain, you go deep. Oh, and, absolutely. and you keep that kind of motivational push and striving for positivity. Tell our listeners about the, um, affirmation you had on your mirror. Tell us that little story behind that. Yeah, well, you know, I I realize that I have a responsibility. And I appreciate you saying that, Becky, too, about, uh, you know, really having both feet um, grounded. Because what I found is I try to be I try to be a person of substance. And that person of substance, if you are real, and you can tell a real story, it's amazing how you can motivate people at the same time and that there's no smoke screen here. This is just real. This is who I am. That's how I wrote this book. What, what you see is what you get. That's my voice writing that book. That's who I am. And what I found through all of this is one of the things that we have with moving forward after death, and it's especially for everybody around you, is we ha- we have a responsibility, and that responsibility is to not stop living. When my father passed away in 2002, my he was 73 years old, and my mom was 70 at the time. And my mom and my father were married for 48 years. They had a loving relationship. They were two wonderful people. But for the next 
17 years upon my mom's death while I was writing this book, um, she stopped living. Mm. She stayed home. She didn't go out. And I would go over there and I would, you know, be with her. I would, you know, take care of the house. I would do whatever I could to help and support her. But I would watch and I would see her just become this person who became reclusive, who um, didn't want to go out. She didn't want to do anything. It was very difficult even to get her out to the house to have dinner at my house. Um, so I would have dinner over there. But it got to a point where she just wasn't changing anything within the house. And she, for 17 years, really didn't live her life like she could have. And a big piece of her died when my father died. And I saw that and I learned from that to say, I have a responsibility to everybody around me. So what I did is I wrote a quote on my on my mirror that was um, that related to that. And this is what it says. Every day I wake up, I have a choice to make. Do I want to have a good day or do I want to have a bad day? Do I want to be sad, mad and have self-pity or do I want to be happy? I have made the decision that I will, I will have good days because that is my responsibility I have to my wife, to my kids, to my friends, and to all the people around me. And I would read that quote each and every day because I said, today, I'm going to have a good day. And as time went by and I realized I wasn't going through the motions anymore and I had more of a purpose each day, I didn't need that quote on the mirror anymore because I was living it and I was doing it. And I've had my friends and I've had family saying, wow, you're doing so good. They don't know the hurt that's inside me all the time. They know a little more now because they read the book. <laughs> but at the same time, you know, I do believe that I'm in such a better place because I made sure I purposely did that because it was my responsibility to do it for myself and for everybody around me. And it really sounds like part of that was motivated by the lesson your mother taught you. Although, isn't that strange? It's like, it's, it's yeah. not the lesson, you know, it's not how a mother would think about how I want to teach my son to handle death well, but it's that paradoxical effect. You know, she, yeah. her seeing her not live her life. Sounds like, is that, is that, was that a huge part of it? Like, okay, what do yeah, I need to it was do a, not to go down that road? It was a huge part of it. What I found in my life, there's a lot of times that I've learned more from what people don't do or mm. aren't doing correctly than are doing correctly. Mm. Now, there are those people that motivate me. Like I love John Wood and the, 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 one of the best coaches ever to coach uh, basketball. Mm -hmm. And he won championships at UCLA, but he has this wisdom about him that's just so simplified and so powerful. But then there were coaches that I had who coached me, who I said, you know what? This guy doesn't really motivate me. I'm going to do it differently. So when I became a coach, I made sure that I coached the way I believed, learning from the coaches who I believe weren't really that great. Of, they weren't great coaches. And they really didn't make a difference in our in our team or in our players or who we were. And I learned quite a bit from that. But I also did take a lot from other people who did the right thing, too. Mm -hmm. And it sounds like just if we look at it really practically, what I keep hearing come up and reading 
you implanting structure in your day was very important for you. Is that right? Yeah. Even when I you think weren't feeling from, it so much. <laughs> yeah. And I think that comes from just being an educator because mm -hmm. we're so structured with our time anyways. Mm -hmm. But I knew that it was important. The good thing about being retired is that I have flexibility within the structured day. And so mm -hmm. that that gave me the ability to do things I really wanted to do instead of the ability to, or to do things I had to do when I was a principal in my last year. Um, that's what I really enjoyed about retirement was having a purposeful day, having a scheduled day, but a scheduled day with, with flexibility. And I love that. And where did your retirement come into um, as far as the timeline with Margaret's death? I retired. Um, Margaret died in January and the following December, I, I retired, December okay. 5th. 2008, uh, 2017. Okay. And what I did though, is upon retirement, I ended up going down, I ended up uh, traveling, went down to stay with a good friend of mine who I coached with for many years down in Naples, Florida. And by the time I left, I actually bought a, a condo down there. And now I have a place down in Naples, Florida. So during the winter weather up in Syracuse, New York, I go down to Naples and I'm 10 minutes from the beach and I I'm on a golf course and it's fantastic. So it's given me another purpose and something new and special for all of us. Mm. As a matter of fact, what's been wonderful with my kids is that we started a new tradition. After my wife passed away, we now do our Christmases down in Naples, Florida. So on Christmas Day, we go to the um, golf and we watch the sunset. So mm -hmm. we go to the Gulf of Mexico, we sit on the beach and it's Christmas day at five o'clock and we're watching the sunset in shorts and a t-shirt. It's not a bad Christmas day. No, no. And it is, <laughs> yeah. I mean, there's, there's a bit of a therapeutic element there too, is like you yes. say, just re reshaping your traditions some as well. It doesn't mean you have to let go of beautiful memories of Christmas past, but a, a new beginning as well. Yes, that's exactly right. A new beginning. So I would like to ask you a question referring to, um, I saw a reference in the book about Margaret writing, it's time to write the funeral plans. And I know that that was something that happened. And I'm not sure how much you all verbally talked about preparing for her death, but wondering if you could speak to how that felt for you, that experience of having her um, be that kind of planner and any conversations surrounding that. Margaret and I, what we would talk about, especially the last year, we, we didn't talk initially about her death, but we knew that it was there, that it was coming. Mm -hmm. And when she went through her last treatment, um, they were where they shot chemo balls right into her liver and really knocked her for a loop. And her last six months, she lived with that and she lost 25 pounds and she was frail anyway. She was 115 pounds anyways, five foot seven and to lose actually 20 pounds. That was quite a, quite a lot on her. But there was an epiphany that I had in October prior to her death that I knew that she was going to be going sooner than later. And we had a conversation and she kept telling me how she was ready to go. And to hear those words really helps. But mm. to hear her say, what I'm really sad about 
you know, the people I'm leaving behind and the sadness that's going to be left behind. And that was very difficult to hear. There were times where we said we held hands, we hugged each other. I would rub her back all the time because she was she was in pain. She was sore. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, we would cry together. And it was just a very sad time for the two of us. She was so depressed and she was so down. And some of that was due to the fact that she was so knocked out that she wouldn't smile. And I would say, hey, you know, I want you to smile again. How can I get you to smile again? And she even wrote in her journal about that and, you know, said, John wants me to smile. I know I'm a bummer and I'm a downer and I'm not helping, but I just can't because I'm so sad about this sadness left behind. And so you had all these emotions, but they were deep emotions. They were sad emotions. And through that, we also had a conversation and she said, you know, I wrote down the plans for my funeral and um, we talked about it. And she wanted me to be the person to give the eulogy because she knew that I was the closest. And I lived this with her for, you know, as much as we were married for 27 years, but I lived this last seven years with her and I held her hand through every step of it. And I told her I wouldn't, I wouldn't let her, I wouldn't let her go. And I would be there every step. And as we went through that, she, um, you know, wanted me to say the words. That's the only thing I changed in the, in the uh, mass that we had for her. And we had a traditional mass and she had her, two of her brothers do the readings and our father O'Brien, we were very close to, you know, led the mass and, you know, just through the whole thing was your traditional mass, Mm -hmm. but the eulogy, I asked her sister and I asked her best friend, Mary Alice, to say the words because they knew her the best and they could tell a story that's different than my story. And they did. They did a wonderful job. And as they did that at the end, after they eulogized her, I went up with my kids and we eulogized her together. My youngest daughter said a few words and then I then I ended it with my words. Mm -hmm. And so people were able to hear a perspective from four different people that I think really gave them an overall understanding of who she was as a person and how special of a person she was. Some of the other conversations that we had, we had to go previous March and we had to sit down with our lawyer and we had to have the conversation about, you know, the the will and, you know, having the power of attorney and the healthcare proxy and, and doing all the power of, you know, all the things that you have to do legally. Mm-hmm. We, she started, to, you know, we had to have the conversation with our financial planner to talk about it's time to turn over some of these things over to me. And I made sure. And what happened because of those conversations when she did die, a lot of those things were already in my name. So the transition of moving accounts over or other things that we had to do were pretty much taken care of. And there were there were a few things that had to be done after her death, but I was prepared for that. And she even wrote notes for me to say, well, here's where you can find this and do this. And we, you know, shared paperwork and whatever we needed to do to try to get through that. That's that's brutal, to be honest with you. Those are very difficult conversations because when we leave those meetings, you know, she knows why without even a spoken word. She knew why we left those conversations. Mm-hmm. And we had to have those conversations. And I feel like I'm hearing it from you, and I certainly have heard it from others, that it really can feel like a comfort later, 
after the death when you know that they've taken care of these things for you or they have written what their wishes are or, you know, they did do some yeah. advanced care planning. It's, it's, it's a bit of them still there in a way making decisions and not leaving you rudderless really. Yeah. And, and part of it too is uh, you're right on with that, uh, Becky, but also the other thing is we, we were at a point in our life where we were very simplified we didn't complicate our life. You know, the kids were doing their things. We had two of them. Um, actually, um, two were in college and one just graduated from college. And so it was me and her during those last six months, mostly. And I, I, my average day, she was home already, but my average day was going to work. I would go to work lunchtime. I would come home, check on her. I would go back to work. And then I would come home and I would be with her the whole night. And many times it was tucking her in early. You know, sometimes it was six o'clock. You know, she was in bed most of the day or it was, um, you know, helping her up the stairs. And it was um, different things like that. But our life was very simple. It wasn't complicated. I would make whatever dinner I could. I would take care of all the things that I could, all the laundry, all the things that needed to be done with household chores. I would run my errands. I would get her medicine. I would do whatever I needed to do to help and support her. So the simplicity of our life at that time was just being together and getting through all those things and being prepared for her ultimate demise. Mm. I wanted to um, circle around to something that you touched on that really spoke to me. Um, I'm just going to read the quote, if that's okay. And then maybe sure. we can chat about it a little bit. It says, I found that as I've moved through my grief, what I've needed from people has evolved over time. Even as I described the people who weren't able to provide the kind of support I needed in the moment, there are absolutely no hard feelings. It's not their fault, nor is it my fault. Some people are unable to be physically present or simply don't know what to say. I definitely live in a lonelier time now, but I understand it. And what strikes me about this is I'm not sure how much you're on social media, but if you are around death talk and grief talk on social media, there can be these waves of don't say this to a person. Don't say, you know, all the lists of how insulting it is to say that. And I've, I've always felt like, you know, can we be a little gentler? Because we forget that even the people that are there for us during our times are likely grievers themselves. A, they're grieving your loss, you know, if they're close to you, but also they have their own history with loss. And as we know, the deep emotions connected with loss, it just brings up so much for people. And I feel like we can just some sometimes people are so harsh about what is said or what isn't said and how people are. And I thought that was a very um, generous statement that you were making here, how you could understand people's inabilities <laughs> is what I was hearing. Well, you, you know what it is, is um, I, I've been through loss myself and, and it's really as a leader. I had to have the ability to understand how everybody grieves differently and you had to be respectful to that. Prior to my wife dying, I actually, as a principal, had a staff member who tragically died um, on my staff. And it was sudden. It was unexpected. 
And I had to bring people together and I had to share with them and I had to say to them that this particular person died. That was how my morning started that particular morning uh, to tell 75 people that, hey, you have a staff member that's in the news and that that person passed. And to watch people literally break down and like melt in front of your eyes. And and I said, you know, everybody's going to handle this differently. And I paid attention to that. And I opened up my schedule for the next month. And I just said to people, you know, I'm free for you, whatever you need, whatever you need. And there were people that came to me. Then I observed people reaching out to others, their colleagues. I saw people, you know, do this, just do it quietly. And their support system was at home. Um, I saw us come together as a staff and try to get some closure. Uh, I, I watched and I observed and I just know that everybody does it differently. And upon my wife's death, I knew the same thing was going to happen. You were going to have your people who were going to be there. And I knew a lot of people were going to be there for the first couple months for me, say. But mm-hmm. I knew they were going to finally go away. And I was okay with that. And I understood that because everybody does it differently. And some people say, well, I gave what I could. I feel good about it. I can move forward. And I'm like, okay. But the ones that stayed, it's amazing how powerful those relationships have become. And the relationships that I have now are so much stronger. But I also try to be very understanding for others because everybody does grieve differently and Mm -hmm. in their own way. The only thing I ask people to do is to try to be careful of being too public, of being a victim of the circumstances and to, um, oh, woe is me all the time. Because I feel that people have a responsibility to try to either stay more positive or maybe you don't need to say that at all Mm -hmm. and, uh, you know, forward that way. But, you know, I still try to be very respectful to everybody and what they have gone through. And as you said, when you have this conversation with people like read my book or they listen to a pod, your podcast, they do connect with things that you talk about because they grieve their own way and they might have their own challenge that they went through. It could be Mm -hmm. divorce. It could be a loss of a parent Uh, generationally. You know, the parent could be 90 years old, but it's still a parent and it's still somebody special in their life. And to have that loss is so difficult. And so it triggers a lot of emotions in people, like you said, and it just really is how do people get through it? And you have to be respectful of that. Mm Mm-hmm. Well, John, it's really been a pleasure having you. I just want to ask you one more question. As deep and wide as you've gone with this process with Margaret, you know, during her illness and then in the aftermath, I'm, I'm wondering what, where are you now when it comes to thinking about your own eventual death? How has this informed you or has it, you know, what are your thoughts on your own? journey in the future? I'm so glad you asked me this question because nobody has asked me this question yet. And I have thought about this. I feel like I want to live because I want to live for myself right now. And I want to live for my kids and all those people around me. And I think it's important in that you have a responsibility to that, like I alluded to earlier. However, I know that upon my death, I'm going to be ready to die because I know that I'm going to go see my wife again. She was the most important person to me. And to have the ability to know that upon my death, that I'm going to go peacefully 
I hope to make it to heaven. I hope to be by your side. And I hope that, you know, the afterlife is going to be something very special that I can uh, be part of and be happy in. Because I know upon my own death, I know that my wife is at peace. I know that she accepted her death. I know that she accepted that she was going to go to heaven. And I just want to be there and be there with her. That would be very special to me and important to me. And I also think that, you know, when it does, when my time does come, I think the people around me will be happy for me because of the fact that we'll be together again. Beautiful. And it's all about being able to have these open dialogues, isn't it? That, you know, if, if you just clenched down, you know, and didn't talk with your family, your kids have any openness, you, they wouldn't know how to feel about that. But because you've been so open about it, they do. And that's a real gift you've given them. Well, I appreciate it. Thanks. And and I do believe, Becky, that this book has given, uh, given, is is created a legacy for my wife that even my grandchildren when i have grandchildren they'll be able to read this book and say oh that was grandma okay and she was special and they'll understand that and know that and when other people generationally come along they'll be able to read this book and say what a special person that's important to me because she was absolutely well Again, John, thank you so much. And I I just wish for you this um, energy of, you know, peace that I can feel with you, that you just continue on that grounded track. And if you would let our listeners know, and we will put it in the program notes, but if somebody right now wants to find you, can you just shout out where the best way to find you is as well as we wrap up? Sure. The best way to find me is at johnsardella.com and they can contact me there. There's a contact page along with that. It also has podcasts. Your podcast will be there. It has articles that I've written for people to help them through grief. And it has many other type of uh, um, information that really is helpful to people who are going to go through a challenging time. So johnsardella.com is the best place to go. All right. Well, thank you again. And you take good care, John. Hey, thank you, Becky. I really appreciate it. It was a great conversation. I, I really thank you for it. It's my pleasure. We hope you've enjoyed your time with us today. We'd love for you to get further connected with our project. You can find the links in the podcast information. You can also find the Death Dialogues Project on Facebook, on Instagram, and at www.deathdialogues.net. Take good care and see you next time.